Hello, you're listening to We Are History with me, Angela Barnes. And me, John O'Farrell. Another one down the uh, down the wire as we uh, enter our 15th year in lockdown. It does feel a bit like that, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. Angela, you're leading on this one today. What are we talking about? I am. Okay, well, today we are talking about, largely about a gentleman called Harold Moody. I don't know if you've heard of Harold Moody, John. Well, no, I mean, I know you name, have because hopefully name. you've done your research. But it is a good name. Um, so to broaden it out a little bit or to explain who Harold Moody is, he was instrumental in the first civil rights movement in Britain. Um, so we'll come on to that more later. When you, um, when you say civil rights, you mean in terms of uh, black people? Not like the Chartists, or yeah, in terms yeah, of no, race no, equality. No, we're not going that far back. Um, <laughs> yeah, even yeah. I'm not going that far back as a background to this <laughs> one. Um, so I think what we thought we'd look at is obviously we should place this where we are in time. It, the yeah. Black Lives Matter movement is, you know, in full swing at the moment. Yeah, and there's a lot of Black history that we were never taught at school, particularly our age. I, I believe it's slightly different if you're at school now, but we weren't yeah. taught anything no. when I was at school. And I think a lot of people, and we've spoken about this before on the episode we did on Equiano yeah. um, a little while ago, but we've spoken about how a lot of people, or the, the sort of overriding feeling is that black people arrived on the wind rush. Yes. And that was that, you know, and yes. it's a very late 20th century. Yeah, the other thing that happens, I, I, I mean, I'm like you, I didn't get taught black history at school, but my kids were taught, mm. taught a bit of black history, but it tended to be uh, American-led. And so it would be Martin Luther King yeah. and Rosa Parks. And uh, interesting though that is, and important though that is, A, it's American history yeah. and it has impact on us but it yeah. also slightly gets Britain off the hook I think it slightly gives the impression that racism mm. is this American thing that they had to deal with and we never had a problem until sort of you know um, uh, the wind rush when some people reacted badly to black people turning up in 1948 which is yeah. far too simplistic and not true really absolutely and, and that's where you lead to now you know with things going on that people think we've solved racism in Britain <laughs> right. um, and it's an American problem and obviously yeah. it isn't Um so I'll tell you what, I'll start by telling you a little bit about Harold Moody and who he was, and then we'll we'll go back to what led him to do what he did. Absolutely. So Harold Moody was born in Kingston, Jamaica, 1882. He was very middle-class um, Jamaican. His father yeah. was quite a prosperous pharmacist. Okay. And in 1904, he moved to England to study medicine at King's College. Now, this was quite a common thing at the time for young Caribbean students to come to Britain for their training. I read about his um, education in Jamaica and it was very much about white teachers teaching them that they were English and England was the mother country and that was Absolutely. what they should aspire to. And, and I think it's worth mentioning at this point as well that... You know, usually when we do these podcasts, we say, I read this book that told me everything I yeah. need to know. That doesn't exist for for this that okay. we're talking about today, really. There is no source. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's a very short episode <laughs> this week. <laughs> there are a lot of articles online that we've read. And there's there's uh, David Olusoga's brilliant book, Black and British, which is a really good yes. sort of overview of of black British history. So we're in the sort of Edwardian era and there were black people in Britain in the Edwardian era. People don't think there was, but there were. And, and they were spread across classes as well. It wasn't just right. poor black people. You had doctors, lawyers, people in Britain. Up to World War One, there were about 10,000 
black yes. people in London alone. Wow. So, you know, it wasn't just the odd couple of, of black people floating around. There was yes. a population. So in 1904, Harold Moody comes to London with all mm -hmm. his hopes and dreams of, of becoming a doctor in the mother country. Yes. He qualified in 1910. And that's when he starts running into problems because yeah. nobody will employ him. He finishes, he finishes top of his class. He's a, you know, a qualified doctor, but he can't get a house position. He can't get a house position at the um, hospital he worked at because a matron refused to have him working at the hospital. And yes. she said, and I'm going to be careful, obviously language she used is language I'm not going to use. Um, so I'll be careful when I'm quoting her. Um, but she said she refused to have him working at the hospital because the poor people would not have an N-word to attend them. Right. Um, so, yeah, she, she put that all on the poor people. Yes, yes. That's Well, that's a, often a thing that racists do is that mm. use the idea of uh, being against racism uh, to not mm. give black people a chance to, uh, to progress. So I remember the, the Tories used to do this, said if we let in more immigrants, it would encourage the National Front. And it's like, so, right, yeah. so it's always a Rather thing than about, fixing the yeah, problem of yeah. the national front. Yes, yes. Or the attitudes or whatever. We, we don't want to encourage racism by doing the things the anti-racists want us to do, you know. So yeah. this is a common uh, thing to sort of project the problem onto other people. But yes, he came up against this his whole life. He I did. Think. Well, eventually he set up his own practice. Uh, in He lived in Peckham. He lived on Queen's Road in Peckham, which wow. again, I used to work on, well, I used to live on Queen's Road, Peckham, pretty much just off Queen's Road in Peckham. And I used to work You were in the health there. service? Yeah, and I'd never heard of him. Wow, that's amazing. So it just shows how yeah. people aren't aware of these really important figures. So he started his own practice. He slowly started to make a living. And in that same year, in 1913, he got married to a nurse that he met while he was a student called Olive Mabel Tranter. She was a white nurse, wasn't she? She was indeed. Reading about his childhood, that his mother, mm. he had a white grandmother, Harold Moody, mm. but uh, he was, you know, at all intents and purposes, a black person. But his mother had encouraged him to play with lighter skinned black people because that would improve wow. his chances of social advancement. Uh, and so within the black community, they were to aspire to lightness and to... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, the status was affected by your the tone of your blackness, as it were. And of course, him being a black man marrying a white woman was frowned on by both sides. Mm. Both sets of you know, parents Absolutely. thought this is a bad so, idea. I mean, this is 1913. You know, we're talking yeah. pre-World War One, And they went on to have six children. And actually, there's um, I haven't been able to watch it. I've been trying to find a place to watch it online. And I don't know if you can. But there was an animated film was made in the 90s about him and his wife. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was a silent animation, apparently, by someone called Jason Young. So if anyone does manage to dig that out or find where it is online, please let me know. I'd love to watch it. Fantastic. But I couldn't find it. Harold Moody was a very popular GP in the area, um, amongst blacks and whites alike. Lots of people came to him when they needed help, and he wouldn't turn people away. So even though he was in you know, private practice, obviously you would be there, he would always help people. And he got known as somebody who would help people who needed it. Uh, he was a very religious man. In 1921, he was elected to the chair of the Colonial Missionary Society's Board of Directors and later on became president of the London Christian Endeavour Federation. And he was a preacher as well, wasn't he, in terms of his Christianity? He was a I preacher think, as well, yeah. yeah. He saw racism in terms of being you know, against the teachings of Jesus uh, and quoted uh, the Apostle Paul, yeah. we are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, what Paul says, I don't know why 
Paul says Jesus' name the wrong way around, but that's how it is in the Bible. But, <laughs> that's, um, that's for another podcast. That's for another podcast. <laughs> uh, but he felt that um, you know us all being one in Christ meant that we we're all equal, and that you know it's part of his yeah. it's part of his Christian fervor that made him uh, believe in the equality of all mankind in the eyes of God. Yeah, absolutely. Right, I'm going to do that thing I do now, John, that you really love oh, when yes. I go back a bit. I'm going to go okay, back a bit. So, right? so, so we've mentioned um, that, that man, there was mankind. a the tectonic plates moved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So we mentioned like that there was this population of black people in London at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And there had been throughout the century before that as well, after the Napoleonic Wars, lots of soldiers and seamen settled. And then World War I comes along. Yeah. Now, by the end of World War I, there were approximately 30,000 black people in Britain. And the reason for that increase is the numbers of black people recruited to fight or for labour during World War One. Right. From um, the empire, I presume. From the empire. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Now, people, I think, see World War One as a sort of white person's war. And there is that stupid idiot Lawrence Fox recently. I don't know. You know, with yeah. the, I haven't seen the film 1917. I don't know if you've seen it. But he uh, yes. did something in an interview about because there was a Sikh soldier in the film and he thought it was, you know, incongruous. Yes. Yeah. And uh, people had to point out to him that there were literally yeah. thousands of Sikh soldiers <laughs> fighting in World War I. Um, but this yeah. is the problem with the lack of education, you know, and, and the fact yes. that we just think that it was a load of Tommies off to fight at the front in France yeah. and that was it, you know. But it wasn't even just a European war, it was a world war. There were theatres yes. in Africa, Middle East... Asia, you know, all over the place. Yes, yes. I think people, apart from Lawrence Fox, uh, they <laughs> sort of know about the Indian soldiers, I think, are quite well talked yes, about in comparison yes. um, yeah. because there were so many of them. And yeah, there were a million soldiers millions, in the Indian yeah. army. Yeah. In yeah. fact, the, in Brighton, where I live, the pavilion in Brighton was a hospital for injured Indian soldiers. Um, wow. Yeah, it was sort of repurposed during World War One. And what's interesting about that is you think, oh, wow, that's amazing. But actually, obviously, they all sent to the same hospital because it was segregation, right? They couldn't possibly be convalescing with white soldiers. Right. Um, so they had their own hospital. And the hospital was surrounded in barbed wire to stop them mixing Wow. with the local that's, population. So somebody must have made that decision. Somebody must have thought, right, this is a hospital for the soldiers on our side. Let's put barbed wire all the way around yeah. it. That's a Can't possibly sort of... have these injured people that are fighting for our lives mixing yeah. with us. How disgusting. Going down the fish and chip shop. Yeah, incredible, yeah. isn't it, really? Madness. In the Caribbean, when World War One started, West Indians, they donated loads of money to aid the war effort because it's the mother country, right? right? You know, And then yeah, yeah. quite a number of West Indians volunteered to fight for Britain. And yes. they joined what was to become the British West Indies Regiment. Right. Well, in Clapham here, we have a, a big hall, which is the West Indian Servicemen's Association. And it's a big hall with all these flags of all the West Indian nations and pictures of all these old guys in World War II uniforms. Yeah. We have our Labour Party meetings in there sometimes in Clapham Manistry. And it's still there. And it's still this sort of funded thing with these old sort of West Indian guys who go down there to have a drink. But it's the UK headquarters, I suppose, of the British West Indian Servicemen's Association. I, think, but I do think World War Two people are a bit, a bit more aware that there were. Yeah. I think World War One surprises people that there were black yes, yes. soldiers and, and and also black British soldiers. It wasn't just people sort of being right. brought in from the colonies. There were people who were living here. So, for example, there was a Spurs player uh, called Walter oh, yes. Tull. 
Um, yes. And he enlisted in 1914. He got shell shock. Um, he returned to the Battle of the Somme. He was decorated with um, loads of medals and victory medals and things. Uh, commissioned as an officer in 1917. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, he was killed in no man's land in the second Battle of the Somme. So, so he played for um, Spurs before the war, we're presuming. He played he, well, Spurs, it wouldn't have been much yeah. good in defence after the war, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think they weren't very good back then. <laughs> so, <laughs> they weren't yeah. much of a team. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of the black people involved in World War I were recruited into the army. Some of them were used as labourers from across the empire. And also, of yep. course, people in the colonies in Africa were used on the borders of German African colonies at the time. So I think like, people what, forget yes. that there Tanzania, were fronts yes. in Africa as well. Yeah, we sort of nicked all those colonies after the First World War, didn't we? What became Tanzania yeah. and Namibia. These had been German Southwest Africa or, you know, um, and we got, them, exactly. we got them into the British Empire in the between the wars. Yeah, Exactly. So they were being defended on those fronts by black yeah. soldiers as well. Yes. And then my impression is that there were a lot of black people in the Navy as well that were recruited yeah. in these ports. Is that a good, is that a good segue to your next bit? <laughs> That's a great segue to the next bit, John. Well done. I see what you've done there. You, we're getting the hang of this, aren't we? I mean, we would be, but if we were professionals, we wouldn't have stopped to say we're getting the hang of this, aren't we? But anyway, <laughs> we'll plough on. So what happened then after World War One? Loads of these um, Afro-Caribbean seamen were decommissioned yeah. or demobilised. So they ended up in lots of port cities, um, yes. Cardiff, Liverpool, Cardiff, Liverpool, South Shields, Salford, yeah. Bristol, yeah. places right. like that. I think it's worth ha having a little pause here just to talk about what the sort of attitudes towards race were yes. then. Because we're at a time where sort of social Darwinism and kind of what they called scientific racism is... Yes, is eugenics. Sort of and, eugenics yeah. and all yeah. of that is by the scientific community held up as something... Oh, it's, yeah, I would say it's fair yeah. to say that racism was the default position of mm. uh, respectable British and European opinion. Absolutely. Um, and that I think that the very business of having an empire, which everyone accepted and believed to be a good thing, sort of required a, a level of racism mm. for Britain to be in mastery over, you know, a quarter of the world's surface area and for the French yeah. to have an empire and some of the other European powers. It sort of necessitated the presumption that white people were superior to black people. Yeah. Economically necess necessitated it, if I could even say that. Exactly. So because that was the prevailing need, that yeah. sort of filtered down. Yeah. My parents, my grandparents, they grew up in a, in a world where uh, the superiority of the white man was just a given. It was just mm. it was just a fact. I had some difficult conversations with my parents, you know, in my youth about the empire being a bad thing and that about black people being equal to white people. My parents would sort of well, I would be anti-racist, but we struggle to shake off certain sort of presumptions that their whole generation sh shared, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the whole concept of scientific racism, it wasn't yeah. formally denounced until the end of World War Two. So, the, you know, yes. the first half of the 20th century, that was still held, like you say, to be the truth. Also, I mean, we're, we're concentrating on Britain for this episode, yes. but obviously you had in the States a lot of very vocal white supremacist eugenicists, uh, people like yes. Theodore Lothrop Stoddard. Um, nice. And these people, what they believed was that World War One had, let, well, he described it as a frightful weakening of the white world. So okay. what a lot of people felt had happened is that the white man had 
basically taught black people how to use weapons of war during Money. World War One. Like yeah. a, World War One warfare changed dramatically from that point onwards. Yes. You know, w with um, the the technology Mach that they used, etc. Machine guns, tanks, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there was this fear that by teaching black men how to use this machinery of war. They'd created wow. a situation where they were now they've, a threat. They'd unleashed. They've let a genie out of the bottle. Yeah. What a, what a bizarre idea. I they know. Were sort of, they had this image of sort of, you know, men with spears and sort of uh, shields. Exactly. Uh, like the Zulus or something. And actually what had happened in places like France, they'd particularly recruited, I think, West African soldiers yeah. because there was this this prevailing feeling that they were more inverted commas warlike they felt wow. that these certain tribes in africa that was their you know they didn't have yeah. the intellectual cap capability of the white man but they had these warlike warrior tendencies and so they would put them on the front line thinking they were right. impervious to pain and able to wow cope wow. with it you know these mad yeah theories absolutely. that that sort God of held in world war one so at the end of World War One, you had this sort of paranoia across Europe of yeah. the threat of black people. And married to that, you had suddenly these black people settling in Europe because they've been demobilised. And of course, it wasn't just the case like now. You think, why didn't they go home? It's because you couldn't get on a flight back to the Caribbean no. the next day, <laughs> know. you know, when you were demobilised. It wasn't yeah. that easy to just go home. No. You know, you money were demobilised yeah. in a port. You were stuck there. You didn't have any money. Yeah. You didn't have any yeah. work. You had enough money for your next meal, if you're lucky. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it was worth just saying these are, these are the prevailing attitudes and these attitudes are from the top, you know, so that filters yeah. down to everybody. There was also a problem of like this sort of hypersexualization of black men in particular, yes. Um, yes. that they were seen as being, you know, very uh, a threat to white women and to the masculinity of white men, you know, that they're going to come and take our women um, yes, and this is a. This also has a sort of a notion of the black man being more animalistic, mm -hmm. and sort of the white man being more civilized and having suppressed his caveman tendencies in the way that they thought a black man might not have done. So this is all exactly. tied into the, the the racism of the. This time. whole scientific racism theory, and it it filters down, you know. Yeah. So you've got this sort of tense atmosphere already. Now, obviously, at the end of World War One, things need rebuilding. So for a short period at the end of World War One, there's work to be done, but that doesn't last for very long and there's an economic depression. So what happens is you have um, in these port cities, you have these um, seamen who have been demobilised, black and white, all vying for work. So what would happen on the docks? You didn't have a job you turned up to every day necessarily. You'd go down to the docks and you would queue up and wait for work. In, in these port cities... There was a lot of tension. People were queuing up together for work. And the narrative from above was that, and, and this might ring some bells with you, John, I don't know. But the reason you can't get work is because of all these black sailors and Indian right. sailors. When you said this might ring a bell with me, is this because this, this is a position you've heard me partaking yeah. on comedy writing? <laughs> exactly. As yeah. I'm queuing up outside the BBC, I'd say, it's all these black comedy, all these women comics who come along now, and all these ethnic minorities. Means there's nothing left for yeah. me. <laughs> Us white comedy writers, we used to, used to all be white comedy writers when I started. <laughs> what, what strikes me about this particular time, is, so very much the narrative from local and national government was, well, you know, 
the reason you're unemployed is because of these immigrants that are here right. taking your jobs. Yeah. Because yeah. that was an easier thing um, for the yeah. government to say than because we've fucked up our economic policies, yeah. Yeah. you yeah. know, or yeah. we've spunked yeah. or we've, all our money on the war. And or, we've, or we've not created know. enough jobs, um, yeah. What strikes me about this particular period is it can't be that, can it? Because so many lives were lost in World War One. That's true, yeah. It's like... That... You know, way more men were lost than there were black seamen looking for work on the docks. Absolutely. That yeah. you can't possibly think that there's this excess of labour is the problem. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The problem yeah. is entirely the economy, right? So Liverpool 1919, tell me about Liverpool that. 1919. I think people know about there were race riots in Chicago in 1919 and there was what they called the Red Summer of 1919 in America, which is fairly well known about. But what people don't know is the race riots that happened here. And they happened in these port cities, Cardiff, South Shields, Hull, all over the place. But I think the most famous is in Liverpool, the most publicised, certainly. Um, and what would happen, these tensions were rising, yes. obviously. And in Liverpool, um, fighting broke out and the rioting crowd reached up to 10,000 people and they were destroying the homes of black seamen. They were attacking black seamen and they lynched a young yeah. Afro-Caribbean man called Charles Wooten, this mob, and they threw him in the river and he drowned yes. while trying to swim away for his life. They were throwing rocks at him and things. Um, this is in, in the all... book, uh, this is in that book, Why I'm Not Talking to White People About Racism. If, it if, is, if yes, yeah. which is a really good read. Um, when the blacks tried to retaliate against the white rioters, obviously the police intervened and arrested the black people. Right. Um, a little word about the unions, I think, at this time yes. is quite interesting because we like to think that they would have been supportive, but they were really uh, held anti-immigrant feelings. Yeah. In Glasgow, for example, the British Seafarers Union and the National Sailors and Firemen's Union, they held these anti-immigrant labour meetings where they blamed foreigners for undercutting white British employment. So the yeah. unions at the time were very much on the side of the state, you know, doing the state's yeah. work for them. Well, uh, yeah, and, and I think they're often reflecting white working class views uh, yeah. and representing the views of their sort of white working class members. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only people I say who weren't like that was tended to be the Communist Party. The Communist Party was always a bit ahead of the others in mm. terms of its attitude to racism. Uh, Harold Moody, when we get to him, wasn't a communist. He was an anti-communist. Absolutely. Uh, but he, his anti-racism came from his Christian faith, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Around this time as well, you had, there was a move to repatriate these demobilised seamen, these colonial citizens that were in Britain. So that move was launched in February in 1919. And then these riots happened sort of between January and August with a peak in June of 1919. And after June, uh, the government then started to remove colonial citizens from Britain more. Right. In, they, they intensified their repatriation wow. um, because they had a fear of, a, inverted commas, black backlash. Wow. Um, and they would offer the repatriates a resettlement allowance of between two and five pounds, which I don't know whether that was a lot in 1919, to be honest. <laughs> doesn't sound too much, does it? doesn't sound yeah. like a lot, does it? Yeah. Um, so between 1919 and 1921, an estimated 3,000 black 
and Arab seamen and their families were removed from Britain under the repatriation scheme. And then a lot of shipping companies that employed Caribbeans would fire them and return to the West Indies because they felt that, you know, it wasn't good PR while all this was going on. It's like a weird sort of premonition of Windrush, isn't it, really? The Windrush scandal of Mm. the last 10 years. It really uh, is. Do continue. Sorry, I'm just um, thinking, sitting here thinking about Theresa May in the Home Office, and it's not that dissimilar, to be honest. Well, no one wants to sit there thinking about <laughs> Theresa May in the Home <laughs> Office, but yeah, uh, yeah, she wasn't the first person to come up with a hostile environment idea. Let's put it no. that way. So uh, there was a colour bar in many cities in Britain, by which I mean. Um, People of colour were not able to get lodgings. They weren't able to get employment. Some places it was officially mandated by the local yeah. government. In other places it wasn't official, but it, it Some, still Yeah, it just happened. happened. Paul Robeson, the uh, famous mm. singer, went into the Savoy Grill in 1926 and was refused service in there uh, famously. Mm. And uh, that was... Um, uh, that got a lot of publicity. But of course it was happening every day to people of colour right across the country. To so people who weren't famous. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. And then in 1925, there was a sort of, well, there's a historian called Laura Tabilly um, who's written about this, and she calls it the first instance of state-sanctioned race discrimination inside Britain to come wow. to widespread notice. And that was the Coloured Alien Seaman Order in 1925. Yes. And this order reclassified black sailors as aliens, despite them being from British colonies. Or even if they were black British. Even if or they even were, if they were if black, they, British. black British, yeah. Yes, Yes. What this meant was that any inverted commas coloured seamen who didn't possess proof of their status as British, they'd have to register as aliens in Britain, yeah. regardless of whether or not they've been in the United Kingdom for more than two months or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, lots of these nationals had no proof of identity. Not everybody had passports yeah. then. Not everybody. Yeah. Um, so they were just sacked or made redundant. You also had the situation where these men disembarking from ships would just be arrested if they didn't have their documentation. And they often didn't because British subjects who were sailors weren't required to carry passports. Yeah, so you could be a black Briton, but you were dis- dis- described as an alien based on the colour of your skin. That was what was set in law. Now. Yeah, absolutely. And it didn't matter what paperwork you had, really. Even if you if you had your discharge certificate showing that you were you know, fighting for the British in yeah. World War One or whatever, they weren't considered proof of nationality. Right. Um, so you had this situation where these men were now registered as aliens and then couldn't get work or lodgings or anything else. And a lot of people have blamed the lack of employment for this legislation, and that's the narrative very much of the time. But actually, yeah. in reflection, the shipping industry was picking up by this time. Mm. And it said that there were lots of jobs, plenty of work. It was just racism. People felt threatened. The order was revoked in 1942. And the man credited with revoking it was... Dun, dun, dun. Was this Harold Moody coming Harold to you Moody. on Smooth FM? <laughs> Let's take a little break there, John, because I think it's quite a lot to digest, isn't there? And it's... Yeah. Um, we did say at the top, you know, not full of laughs this episode, unfortunately. No, but, no, um, but uh, it's, it's really important. interesting and important stuff. So, yeah, we'll have a little yeah. break and we'll come back and revisit Harold Moody. Catch you in a minute. Hello, welcome back. Welcome. Yes, yeah, sorry, you caught me on the hot there. Like, <laughs> you oh, with us, John? I'm 82. <laughs> yes, we're talking about Harold Modi and the League of Coloured People. We which are. are, which are is that a spoiler? Oh, well, you know, maybe a little bit. Doesn't matter. We've talked about up to the sort of mid late 1920s, but this attitude 
continued yeah. in Britain throughout the 1930s. Black people were refused service in restaurants, hotels, lodging houses. Um, it was very difficult for them to get work. Yeah. Um, and also very difficult, like we said earlier, for them to go home because they had no money. You yeah. know, So there is, yeah. the, the black people that were in yeah. Britain at this time are in a really difficult position. Um, on the 13th of March, 1931, at the YMCA in Tottenham Court Road, um, Harold Moody... Oh, um, he called a meeting yeah. and he'd made several contacts over the years. Remember Harold Moody was a doctor, middle class, black man working in London, very well respected in his community. A creature. And, a creature. and he had been visited by and was helped by a man called Charles H. Wesley, who was an African-American history professor who'd been in Britain on a Guggenheim Fellowship. And he was a member of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People in America. Which we know a bit more about, I think, over here. Yeah. Which we do know a bit more about. Yeah. So he yeah. had come over with these ideas and and sort of told Howard Moody about the movement that was happening in America. And on that yeah. night in 1931, they formed the League of Coloured People. Which was going to be a British version of the NAACP. Exactly. And, and as we said earlier, like the first sort of black civil rights movement in Britain, yeah. really official. Yeah. Um, other members of the League of Coloured People had some quite prominent members. Uh, C.L.R. James, who's quite a famous oh, yes. anti-colonial... Um, Cricketer. Uh, and... He's a socialist journalist and historian and all sorts. Yeah. Um, he was a member. Jomo Kenyatta, who went on to be Prime Minister of Kenya. Um, yes. And Una Marson. Have you heard of Una Tell Marson? She... Not till you send me your notes. <laughs> right. Well, she's, I mean, I, I really, I wouldn't mind doing an episode on her if we can find, she sounds fascinating. She was a Jamaican writer and poet. And in Jamaica, she made her name as a poet. And then she came over to London because she thought that would help further her career yeah. as a writer. And it was only really in London when she then encountered racism and became an activist. She was really surprised by what she encountered when she got here. Not the narrative they were sold growing up in Jamaica. That was the thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when she came here and she was also, um, I suppose, like an early example of that intersectionality between racism and feminism. Yeah. You know, she was a feminist, uh, but particularly an advocate for black women. And she was the first black female producer at the BBC. That's amazing. So there you go. Before, before the floodgates opened. Exactly. The now there's a list. And now there three are three. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, BBC. We love so, you. Yeah, we do but, love you, know. BBC. They do pay my mortgage. So <laughs> the inaugural executive committee was set up on yep. that night and it included uh, Mr. Dr. Cecil Belfield Clark of Barbados, George Roberts of Trinidad, Sam Morris of Grenada, Robert Adams of British Guyana and Desmond Buckle. What a lovely name of the Gold right. Coast. Um, the Gold Coast, the Gold Coast yeah. was now Ghana. Ghana now, yeah. The, called the Gold Coast or when the British Empire left, it was just coast. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh God, it's depressing. Um <laughs> Also present at that first meeting was a woman called Stella Thomas, and she went on to become the first female magistrate in West Africa. So there were some real prominent yeah. um, black figures involved. The objectives of the League of Coloured People, so they had four main objectives originally. Yep. Uh, one was to promote and protect the social, educational, economic and political interests of its members. Yeah. The second was to interest members in the welfare of coloured peoples in all parts of the world. So they weren't you know, just focused on British issues. They were looking at issues yeah. going on yeah. 
you know, yeah. in other places. Three was to improve relations between the races. And I think when you look at the history of the Race Relations Act, there's a direct line to the League of Coloured People yes. and the work they did. Absolutely. Their idea wasn't to completely cut off from from everyone. It was to foster these relations and, and you know, educate other people. about. And they did, in fact, have white members. Um, yes, although weirdly... Isn't they weren't a, allowed to be on the committee. Right. Okay. Um, 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 I mean, that's something that should be said about uh, Harold Moody is that he was very much for working within the system. He was not oh, yeah. about overthrowing the system and that racism would disappear when you overthrew capitalism and imperialism, which was the communist position. Yeah. So the the communist paper, the, the, the Negro Worker... Uh, they branded him an Uncle Tom for being mm. sort of uh, not revolutionary enough and not militant enough against the uh, uh, racist imperialist state of Britain. Or I mean, they came under fire from a few angles, the League of Coloured People. Yeah. You know, I suppose it's important to remember they were operating within their time and within the structures that were there at the time. But they were yeah. certainly seen as quite paternalistic, which is something now that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, you want to support people to be empowered, not to receive aid necessarily. Absolutely. And he, uh, Harold Moody himself, believed in the British Empire. He thought it could be a force mm. for good. It was not so radical back then as to say, no, uh, imperialism is the father or mother of uh, racism. He thought that it could yeah. be, you know, reformed and become a trans-global force for good yeah. rather than always being sort of run from London and requiring racism. So, yeah. you know, some well, of his opinions yeah. now would be seen as quite old-fashioned. But Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, they're... We don't they're, blame them for that. They're sort of philosophy I suppose was to educate people but to infuse a sort of cultural imperialism so right. to to kind of induct I suppose West Indians yeah. into British culture and to yes. be British subjects rather than recognizing their own culture and their own within the society yes. you know so it had yes. it had very different aims to now but it was still the beginning of that process. The other objective they had, the League of Coloured Peoples initially, was to cooperate and affiliate with organisations sympathetic to coloured people. So to signpost, I guess, their members to organisations that would help them and that weren't racist, essentially, right. at the time. Yes. And then later on, a fifth aim was added in 1937, where they would actually give financial assistance to coloured people in distress as lies within their capacity. So they would do fundraising and um, help people out financially if they were in crisis. Right. Moody himself, I think he saw his position, it's because he was a doctor and because he was middle class, he was able yeah. to talk to government authorities, hospital yeah. managements and people in authority who would listen to him. So he would talk to the colonial secretaries and to the government representatives on a fairly level basis. Well, not, well, was, you know. He was an intellectual and a very well-read yeah. man, and so that he could hold his own. Exactly. So he was able to lobby colonial secretaries yeah. and stuff to, to push these campaigns forward. So, yes. you know, while there are accusations of, you know, this Uncle Tomness about him or whatever... He was using those relationships, I guess. It was still moving the movement forward from where it was. Yeah, he was trying to work from the inside and change British society instead of trying to overthrow British society, which seems like a reasonable stance to take. He was a preacher. Absolutely. He was a very experienced speaker and a very big man physically, apparently. He was very large um, and was invited to speak all over the country, partly because having a black speaker was such a novelty. And um, yeah. but that gave him, gave him a wide audience. Uh, from which Absolutely. to preach his uh, messages. And I think it's worth saying, you know, while these people criticised his methods, they did work with him, they did cooperate with him um, on sort of equal rights campaigns and things like that, because even though, you know, 
I, I sort of wish the left would remember this sometimes, is that even though you might have differences of opinions, you could still work together on some things, you know, and I think that's part of the left's problem I know, I know. is that, yeah. I mean, the Tories will work with UKIP because they know that yeah. that then strengthens their position in certain areas, you know, and I think the left's yeah, yeah. particularly bad at doing that now. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, absolutely. Let's not dwell on that. It is depressing. Um, later on, the movement went on to work on other civil rights issues as well. And they actually were very involved in working against the persecution of Jews in Germany. That was one of their issues. So they weren't focused just on black Afro-Caribbeans. No. They had a sort of international remit. I think he was very fired up by the, well, a couple of years later, but I think he was very fired up by the uh, invasion of Abyssinia by Mussolini mm. and the persecution of the sort of only independent African country when it was attacked by a European power. It was a great watershed moment for the black movement internationally. Absolutely. The League of Coloured Peoples had a journal, a quarterly journal called mm -hmm. The Keys. And you can, there were copies of it in the British Museum. Okay. It was called The Keys. It was named after a parable written by James Agri, who was a Ghanaian uh, intellectual. It was called The Keys because he wrote the parable where they used the key, piano keys, the black and white piano keys as a sort of image of racial harmony. We're talking ebony a, and ivory. Direct line from that, exactly, <laughs> right through to Paul McCartney and Stevie, Stevie Wonder. Wonder. Side by side on my piano keys. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knew? Who knew? I, I was going to join in then, and then I remembered I can't sing, so I. Stopped. Neither can I, Angela. <laughs> but, Do you know who edited the keys? Uh, I don't. It's going to be someone interesting. It was our good friend Una Mason. Ah, fantastic! Okay. So she was the editor of their quarterly journal. Wow. Uh, now the, the League of Coloured Peoples was relatively small. It, the organisation never had more than 500 members. In 1936, by that time, it only had 262 yeah, but, members. But they were busy writing um, letters and, uh, you know, any time racism absolutely. appeared and campaigning. and They got press attention, they got exposure. And like you say, yeah. I think because they had this prominent intellectual black man that was a novelty to white middle class people. To, so they wanted to hear him speak. Yes. So the legacy of the league then, um, we're not going to, we're talking about what happened up to World War II. Yeah. Obviously quite a lot happened in, uh, in World War II, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> Great quotes from um, Angela, the historian. Quite a lot happened quote, in World that's War II. That's for another II. podcast. Quite a lot. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware. <laughs> I'm going to tweet that out afterwards. Uh, as, as like historian and uh, Angela you know, Barnes said, quite a lot oh, happened Jesus, in World War II. Quite a lot happened in World War II. Job done, <laughs> book written. There we go. I was I, I'll level with you, John. What happened is I got a new sewing machine. Oh yeah, uh, and it arrived yesterday, and oh, no. I was up playing with it till two a.m. They're doing your homework. Um, I'm quite tired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My fault entirely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, during the Second World War, though, they were very active. They highlighted so in evacuations. Yeah of children during World War II found it very difficult to place black or mixed race children. Families didn't want to take them in. Wow. And the League of Coloured Peoples worked very hard to highlight that discrimination and find homes okay. um, for young black children. In 1944, they organised a three-day conference in London where they drew up a charter of coloured people. Yeah. Um, and that sort of foreshadowed the Pan-African conference that was held in Manchester the following year. Yes, I read that they're, they so, were at the peak of their influence in the, in the, in the early 1940s during the war. And that they absolutely. Had their most, uh, and at a time when I suppose the tide began to turn on the notion of racism and imperialism, mm. you know, was, was the Second World War. After the um, horrors of the Holocaust, we saw where racism led. And imperialism became a lot less fashionable when the war was over. And we thought, oh, yeah, we're going to have to give back India. We're going to have to give up our colonies and start looking inwards instead of thinking we can rule the world. So 
yeah, that was a big turning point. I think their, their lobbying and their letter writing and their calls for legislation, which was very radical, I think there's a direct line from, from their campaigns to the first Race Relations Act that we saw in the you know, 20 years after the war. Absolutely. Um, Harold Moody himself, he died on the 24th of April 1947. Um, but the League continued for another four years right. after he died. And like you say, I think there is a direct line from that to well, the Race Relations Act that came in the 60s, yeah. which again, we could do another podcast yeah, absolutely. on that. So he died before or uh, Windrush was 48. Yes, it was. That, yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Like I said, not not a whole lot written about him, really. There was a, a biography written yeah. um, by David A. Vaughan. But I, could, I mean, you can't I couldn't get couldn't get hold of I it. I don't know where you'd find a copy. Yeah. I think they're pretty rare to find yeah um there is this animation that i spoke about the film that was made in yeah. the 90s about him there's a bronze bust of moody at the national portrait gallery which was cast by his brother ronald moody actually who's a sculptor okay and there's a park um, isn't there there's a park in nunhead named after him i believe there is indeed oh. which was opened in 1999 no. but i think i think we're having we're at a point in our history where the history of black britons is sort of uh, coming to the fore again and there's a new generation of black writers who are bringing mm. our, this stuff to our attention. We're two white, you know, middle class, well, me particularly, Angela. Speak for yourself, John. <laughs> you work on Radio 4 now. <laughs> are you, you know, <laughs> you, you always, I, I'm not middle class. You go, well, you do host the news quiz. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, you've got your middle class card. But anyway, as we, we, we <laughs> no. you know, we, um, we go into this with a sort of awareness that our education is lacking. We're listening and learning. We're listening and learning. As the new, yeah. That's the new thoughts and prayers, isn't it? Just going, we're listening and learning. <laughs> But I think it yeah. is important, you know, no one educated us on this stuff. We've got to educate ourselves yeah, that's, on so it. That's and it is important. Here. And I feel very ignorant yeah. about the history of black British people, yeah. you know, and I do think it's pervasive that people think, oh, yeah. they arrived on the wind rush and that, that's when they all, the problem started, you know, and it's just not true. There's, no. You, there was that wonderful book we read for another episode, The Black Tudors. Yes. Um, you know, if you haven't read that, have a look at that and just... just yeah, you know, educate yourselves that black people have been here. There were black people were here in Roman times. That's right. They found up at the evidence up that, at the Hadrian's Wall. Yeah, know. that would have been a chilly old posting yeah. for a North African, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, wouldn't it? Just? So, so thank, um, thank you, Harold Moody, for your for your work. Thank you for your uh, your absolutely. campaigns and all you did. I'm afraid sorry you weren't remembered more, but maybe we do a tiny, tiny little bit towards raising awareness of of what you did and the legacy you left us. Thank absolutely. you, Angela researching that one thank you john don't forget to follow us on social media on twitter at we are history pod any suggestions you've got for episodes we write them down and then we might ignore them we <laughs> might do them who knows thank, it's our prerogative thank you spike our <laughs> producer engineer all round good egg and um absolutely uh, we're going to do a couple more i think and then we might take a break in august uh or end of july yeah. but uh We've got a, a couple more we're going to record and then we'll uh, then we're going to take a break and just stay at home. Stay in because we've not done much stay of in, that. Stay at home. Have a <laughs> I don't know. We could go out a bit now. I swam in the sea the other day, oh, John. It was jealous. bloody lovely. I'm jealous. I swam, oh. I swam in the River Thames. Oh. So we've <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Okay. Catch you next time. You on next we time. are history.